Welcome to the I Make a Living podcast brought to you by FreshBooks, the number one cloud accounting solution for small business owners and their teams. I'm your host, Demona Hoffman, and I'm one of you, an entrepreneur who has had to weather a lot of ups and downs in my business. This is the final episode of season two, which comes right as economies around the world look to rebuild from this pandemic. There's no better way to end this season than with a special masterclass episode on the first thing to fall off a to-do list for small business owners in times of crisis, marketing. I'm talking to Terry O'Reilly, advertising pioneer and the voice behind the hit CBC podcast, Under the Influence, which highlights important moments in marketing history and the lessons that can be learned from the wins and losses of prior campaigns. In today's special masterclass episode, Terry will teach us the insights he learned over 30 plus years as an ad man. Then he will also respond to questions that you, our I Make a Living audience, have submitted. If you don't have a mentor, we hope that our masterclass episodes can offer you a form of digital mentorship. Here's Terry on the mentor that made his career what it is today. There's a lot of learning to be had from somebody who's generous enough to, to give it to you. And then you try and form a relationship with them. I think that's the key thing. So my creative director really loved big ideas, and he taught me how to dig for a big idea. And more than anything, he taught me how to present ideas. And I think in almost any business, and in particular the advertising business, there's two sides to the coin. One side to the coin is to generate big ideas, and the other side of that coin is to sell those ideas. He was the best presenter I ever saw. And he taught me how to present, how to excite a client in a boardroom, how to reveal the idea slowly, and then how to deal with uh, questions, comments, and negative comments on the other side of the reveal. And that lesson really informed my whole career, I think. That was the the magical thing that made my career work. And your podcast, one thing that I really love about Under the Influence is the way that you take stories from other people who have marketed successfully in the past. You talk about their wins, their losses, and use those anecdotes to be able to inform the audience of marketing techniques that may work for them. What were some of the lessons that you personally learned when you were working in advertising that you put into practice in your business today? That's a good question. I'll tell you what one thing is, and there are many, but one thing is this. You never have the marketing budget you wish you had. And very few companies do have the budget that gives them enough marketing money to do whatever they want to do. So most companies don't have that luxury. And especially if you're a small to medium-sized business, I learned early that you want to pick your greatest area of opportunity to focus on. Instead of trying to, for example, let's say you're buying radio stations, radio campaign for, for lack of a different uh, subject. Instead of buying 10 radio stations lightly, buy four heavily. More often than not, clients would come to me and say, we want new customers. We want to attract, we have to increase our business. And the way to do that is to attract new customers. But often, the better strategy would be to do more business with your existing customers. So how can you get your existing customers to buy more product or get you to use your services more often? So sometimes the solution is to look for your greatest area of opportunity. Don't try and, and go too wide with your net. Go really narrow and deep. That was a big lesson for me. To demonstrate Terry's narrow net philosophy, I have to ask you a question. What's your favorite potato chip? 
if you said Uts, I'm going to hazard a guess that you're from Maryland. A potato chip market case study, which was featured on an episode of Under the Influence, shows us why Uts wins in Maryland every time. And even in the Uts case, I mean, they were up against the Lay's potato chips, so a big, big competitor with deep, deep pockets. And the way to to beat them in that market was to really own the Baltimore area, is to really just become the hometown chip. And they put all their effort against that. And they've been the market leader there against a huge competitor for over 100 years. That's a huge thing. And those people in Baltimore, they love us. And I think we sometimes we get stars in our eyes. We want to be the big name. We want to be the Lays. But sometimes it's great to just be the Uts and have those fans. There's a great book that I often reference on my show called Small Giants by Bo Burlingham. Anyway, his, his book is about companies that choose to stay small but great. In other words, by growing bigger, they would become less great. And I think there's a, a real reasonable marketing strategy there that small can be excellent. Absolutely. And I want to dive into what excellence really means. You mentioned earlier, rather than trying to find new customers, you have to service the customers that you already have or continue to sell to them. And I know you do a lot of marketing talks across the world. And one of the topics you talk on is why customer service equals profit. I think nothing says more about your company than the way you treat your customers. And I think it says more about your company than any marketing campaign ever could because it is, uh, you're just laid bare as far as how much you love and appreciate your customers. And I always say that customer service is marketing. It's not really a separate division. How you treat your customers is your marketing. And I always say this too, that customer service doesn't cost money, it makes money. In other words, the better you treat your customers, the more you go, and I even, in my talk, Demona, I talk about going the extra inch, not the extra mile, that the smallest little touches delight and surprise customers, that if you're able to do that, they will want to do more business with you. They will bring other people and recommend other people to do business with you that great customer service makes money. It doesn't cost money. Mm -hmm. And those people, if they are fans of yours, they will continue to market for you. Exactly. Become your roving sales force. So as we're talking about that amplification of your message and having people that uh, are fans of you continue to be your sales force, one thing that's come up a lot at the I Make a Living live events is social media marketing. We can't ignore social media as a powerful tool. What is your philosophy on social media marketing right now? Social media is critical and to all businesses. The great thing about social media is you don't have to spend money. You can, but you don't have to. You just have to spend time. And social media really, they're, they're just channels. Whenever someone says, what's your media, social media strategy, I say, well, what's the idea? What's the goal? Because those are just channels. What you put into those channels is what's uh, interesting to me. What we try and do, for example, when we promote our radio show and our podcast on social media is we try and develop creative that's different in each of those social mediums instead of putting the same thing across all the social uh, platforms. Because Twitter delivers a very different audience and a very different experience than Instagram does. And LinkedIn is very different than Facebook. So 
I think one of the things you have to understand as a small marketer is what are the the strengths of each, each of those social mediums? And then how can I put a piece of creative in there that's interesting? You can't just be selling all the time on social media because it is social media. People don't have a lot of patience for hard selling on social media. So you have to create a relationship with your customers or your listeners, whoever it might be. And if you look at our, our social media, for example, is look, look at the interaction between us and our listeners. It is every single day. We're talking to them. We're responding to them. They send in great episode ideas to us. They'll send me something saying, hey, Terry, I was just on vacation in Germany and I saw this great ad. I thought you might find it interesting. And I would have never seen that if the listener had not sent it to me. So when we have that kind of relationship, what happens then is when it comes time to promote our show or to sell my latest book, I can do that in social media because they will, they will be open to it because the rest of the time we're actually having an interaction as opposed to me just being a one-way conversation trying to sell something. Yes. And that's a real benefit if you are listening back a few decades ago, if you wanted to hear what your customers were saying You'd either have to survey them or hire a company to do market research. Yep. And now you can do market research really in real time. I want to talk a little bit about branding. Um, obviously, branding and marketing are close cousins. <laughs> and especially as we're talking about social media, many of our listeners are building a personal brand and not just offering a particular product, but they're, they're selling themselves. And I know you've been down this journey as well. You've, you're branded yourself. You're branded as the podcast. You've, you've had multiple podcasts and radio shows. And then now you have a whole podcast company that you're growing and, and launching. Can you talk a little bit about that evolution for you and then the difference between marketing as a personal brand versus marketing a product or a company? I think that personal branding is very interesting. And I actually, in my latest book, uh, have a whole chapter on that. And my thesis in that particular chapter was to borrow the marketing tactics of big brands and bring them down to the level of yourself, of your personal branding. Meaning, look around you, look at all your competitors. Let's say you're, you're trying to create a resume, you're, you know, you, you're up against looking for a job against maybe 200 other people. I think the thing is, is what makes you unique? What can you build around what makes you unique? Can you build a brand that is purely you? Instead of trying to uh, replicate what someone else is doing or what you think somebody wants to see, if you can build your brand about, around yourself, because you are unique. The way you look at the world is unique. You have, you have a unique worldview and a, and a set of experiences that no one else has. Whenever I've done that in my career, whether it was building, you know, launching a company or launching a radio show or launching a podcast, I always tried to build it around what makes it unique, what makes it different. Then the other lesson in personal branding, I think, is that you want to take from the big brands is that there has to be a consistency across all your communications from your business card to your website, to your podcast, what you say on social media. There should be, I call it my shish kebab theory, which is, you know, a shish kebab has a piece of meat, a green pepper, a tomato, an onion, and a mushroom, but it's all held together by the skewer. And great marketing is all about the skewer, that everything should feel like it's coming from the same place, even though every morsel on that skewer is slightly different to fit the medium. And I think the biggest mistake that people make when they're branding themselves, 
or smaller companies that are doing their own branding and can't afford an advertising agency is everything does, feels disconnected. There's no through line. There's no consistent tone of voice or even color elements being used here and there that when someone sees your stuff out in the marketplace that they start to connect the dots, that they go, ah, oh, that's from that same person or there's another interesting thing from that same company. And I saw something three days ago from them, that, but it was, it was something else, but both of them were smart. And then people start to get curious about you or they file you in their mind as an interesting person or company. And then when you knock on their door, they're more interested in letting you in. You said something that kind of struck a chord with me as an entrepreneur. You said the marketing should be inspired by what big brands are doing. And just a different shade of that is looking at what competitors are doing, what other people in your market are doing. And one trap that I'll admit I've fallen into is looking at what other people in my niche do and then thinking, well, if they're doing that, then I should be doing that too. And then falling into that follower kind of marketing as opposed to uh, yeah. taking away the lesson and iterating it so that it's unique to you and unique to your business. How can you take what the big brands are doing and make it really make sense for your own brand and your audience without being a copycat? Yeah. Well, the, the key thing, and you'll hear me say this in my podcast and radio show over and over again, and my book is from one cover to the other. This is what I say in that book. Never, ever try and look like somebody else in your category. Do not feel that when you look at your category and everybody else is doing the same thing, that there's a reason for it other than they're inhaling their own exhaust fumes. So what you have to remember is that in any category, there, those boundaries are artificial. That, and there's a reason why all beer ads look the same and all car ads basically look the same is because those marketers are thinking within the confines of their category. They're, you know, all beer marketers are, are, are feeling like they have to look like beer marketers. What I say is just look like a great marketer. Push the guardrails back because that kind of thinking is going to open up lots of different pathways for you. If you try and look like your competitor or smack of your competitor or smack of the category, I think in most cases, that's terrible marketing. Sometimes it's hard to to push back those voices, you know, when everything is telling you this is what works totally. and you have to have that conviction in yourself and in your business and your idea to do it a different way. You'll only have incremental success if you do that. You'll only have little incremental gains if you play that game. You won't have those big leaps forward where suddenly you break through. You'll have that just those incremental or you'll just be flat like the your revenues will just remain flat going forward and, and no company can really take that for too long. No, we don't want that. <laughs> we want to be successful mm. and we want to brand authentically. Let's say one of our listeners has tried a particular way of branding themselves and it's just not working. How do they reinvent? How do they rebrand? Well, that's a very good question. It's, and it's kind of a case-by-case -case answer on that. But I'll say generally speaking, you have to do some reconnaissance and really you know, look at all of your touch points with your customers and just see what's not working and where the disconnect is. Depending on how dire the situation, it's either the French revolution or the French evolution. So you either, you know, you evolve to something if, you know, you just kind of up your game a little bit, but you know, it's not a dramatic change. You just are, are changing some elements of your branding. Or if it's just 
completely not working for you, then I think you got to start all over again and, and build up another brand out there. And that's, that's the bigger task, of course, when you're starting from ground zero. But I think it takes self-analysis. The other thing, too, is talk to your customers. Feedback is the breakfast of champions. And <laughs> even in Pirate, I always wanted to know from our clients what they hated about us. And that was a very hard question to ask people because, you know, the answers can be hard to hear. But I always found, too, that your clients don't really want to tell you what they hate often. So what I would say to them is, tell me three things you love about us and one thing you hate. And the reason I did that was they were much more willing to tell me what they hated about our company if they could give us three really great things. Like they felt that by giving us three compliments, the bad thing wouldn't be as hurtful. But I was really only interested in the bad thing. Mm. And I think listening to that hard feedback is really important because you can't fix what you can't see. Sometimes the, the speed bumps that drive your clients crazy, you are completely oblivious to because you're not them. You're only seeing it from your side of the glass. So I think trying to find out what's not working is key to a really smart company. In my 15 years as an entrepreneur, I've learned that listening to your customers is the best way to market to them. For many small business owners, the responsibility of marketing lies entirely on their shoulders, even if it's not their area of expertise. Are you wondering what the most important aspect of marketing is? Do you find the right product that will sell itself? Is a marketing strategy the most important? Or should you focus your immediate efforts on building an audience? Turns out, you need a little of all three. If you're wearing all the hats, it's difficult because you're juggling operations, you're juggling marketing, you're juggling staffing, you're juggling revenue in and out. So I guess what you have to do is become incredibly disciplined about it. And marketing is usually the thing that gets pushed to the side of the desk. It doesn't seem to have the same urgency as keeping a client happy or making sure you can meet payroll. And I always say that marketing is really what fuels everything else. So you have to make sure you're not pushing marketing to the side of the desk, that you have to say, okay, every Thursday afternoon, barring a five alarm blaze, is my marketing afternoon where all my attention is put into my marketing every week. You know, Steve Jobs, I think, was the greatest marketer of our generation. He met with his advertising agency every Wednesday and spent the whole day with them every week. I mean, you have to think, what? Mm. That isn't like, what other CEO of a major corporation meets with their advertising agency and spends a whole day with them? Because he wanted feedback. He wanted them to understand what he was working on. His agency was Shy at Day, which was the last agency I worked for. And there was something about that relationship between Shy at Day and Steve Jobs that resulted in all that great work. Yes. And that brand is just so clear. I mean, they knew they're entering the market as they were the little guy at the time and that having the right marketing and the right branding was going to be the difference between making it or, or breaking it. it. It was, but it was also that, and my bigger point being that Jobs made it a point. Imagine how busy Steve Jobs was. He made it a point to spend an entire day every single week with his advertising agency. So what I'm saying to small entrepreneurs is at least spend one afternoon every single week on your marketing at the very minimum. We recorded this before we knew the world would be facing widespread economic hardship today. So you might roll your eyes at me when I tell you that marketing your business immediately is important. But we can learn a lot from the history of economic crises. 
To put Terry's observation into today's perspective, my team and I did a little research to see how Apple fared in past recessions. And surprisingly, Apple was completely recession-proof in 2008 and 2009. Even Forbes was shocked to report such a phenomenon in one article published on October 19th, 2009. Here's a direct quote. The iPhone maker shocked investors Monday, reporting a fourth quarter earnings leap of more than 47% from the year ago quarter. If the company has any plans to replace the water coolers at its Cupertino headquarters with large vats of Don Perignon, it should go right ahead. Apple's leadership looks different today, and the effects of this pandemic are still unfolding, but the history lesson remains the same. Business leaders who continue their marketing efforts in times of crisis are more likely to come out on top. Next up, Terry O'Reilly answers your questions to round out this masterclass. The first one comes to us from Mark Marinaccio, owner of Transcription Farm, a company who does media transcription and translation for television shows. I took a side hustle from nothing to more than $1 million in total revenue in less than five years without any marketing. Now I need to scale my business. It's so niche that traditional marketing is ineffective. Where do I look for non-traditional marketing ideas on a shoestring budget? So he's in the business-to-business world, which is interesting. He's not B2C, he's B2B. The great thing about B2B is you know where your customers are. B2C is a little bit of a mystery sometimes. You know, where are my customers? I know who they are, but where are they? In B2B, you know exactly where your customers are. So I think the key for that person would be to identify, you know, again, your greatest area of opportunity. Are there three companies you want to target so that if you land one of them, you've just increased your revenue in a huge way? When we were starting Pirate, just an interesting story, it was a a sound production house. So we wanted to try and, uh, you know, get more and more creative teams at advertising agencies to hire our company to produce the radio and television commercials. We hit on this strategy early because we didn't have a big budget. We were just launching. We decided to focus on just the most award-winning creative teams in the country meaning the creative teams that always swept all the award shows. And there were really only about seven or eight teams, so less than 20 people. And our logic was this. Our thinking was, if we could get half of those award-winning teams to come and do work with us, all the other teams would look to that and want to come too. In other words, they would want to do what the award-winning teams are doing. So we focused just on 20 people out of thousands of, of potential customers. And when we managed to get half, almost half of them to start doing business with us, our revenues quadrupled. It wasn't all coming from those 20 people, understand. It was coming from all the other teams that wanted to emulate the award-winning teams. And that's what I mean about looking for your greatest area of opportunity. Sometimes it's a small little marketing play you can make that can have big ramifications. This one comes to us from Saranya Haranpradist in Chicago. She's a huge fan of Under the Influence, by the way, and she's had some great aha moments when listening to the show. And she's put those thoughts into action with her clients and strategies. So there's a little vote of confidence for Under the Influence. This is Saranya from Chicago. Some business partnerships aren't meant to be due to conflict of interest, poor chemistry, etc. My question is, could you tell us about a time where you turned down a client, and why? I have to say, over 25 years of running that company, we turned down very few clients 
because I think we were just in the bigger leagues where it was really, you know, it's the McDonald's and it's the Budweiser's. It's just those bigger brands we were working with. But I do remember a time when somebody came to us and wanted to create a campaign. It was aimed at divorced men or men going through divorces. And his idea was that it was a phone line that they could get some affordable legal advice so they knew what they were doing without having to hire a big-time lawyer, that they could at least get some grounding in legal advice. And I thought, well, that's an interesting idea. And in the middle of the briefing, he kind of cackled at one point and said, because, you know, guys going through a divorce are so desperate they'll pay anything. And then he laughed and kind of rubbed his hands together. And I thought, I'm not doing business with mm. you. Because that little, just that moment in an hour meeting with him, just that one moment said, I'm not your guy. It's not in alignment with your values, right? But that kind of thing, I have to say, happened very rarely. The only other instances I can really think of over the years was when we had a toxic client where the client was, you know, spending lots of money with us, but they were tormenting our staff or we were reducing people to tears or just being so abusive in the relationship. And I think leaders have to protect their staff. So we would resign accounts that started to treat our people badly. And we would do it pretty quickly. And sometimes it was painful because they were big accounts with lots of revenue, but the the resulting damage was just too much. And it's not easy. It's not easy when you're in a recession. Let's say, for example, you're in a recessionary year and you don't want to let anybody go. And then one of your biggest clients turns abusive. And then you've got to make a very hard decision. It's not easy. There are other people who will work with you who will treat people the way that you want to be treated. So it's always making decisions based on your values. Our next question for Terry came to us from our last live event in Toronto. Um, Hi, I'm Renit Swarovski, and I'm the founder of League of Moms. Essentially, it's a directory of services for Toronto moms and moms-to-be. I think one of the most important things that you always hear is how to understand your consumer. And so I'd love to get some insights on how to get to know your consumer better and how to dig deep into their mindset as well. I think that is such a critical question. My mentor that I mentioned earlier was brilliant at that. He always wanted to know how a product truly fit into someone's life, not the way that the marketer hoped it did, but the reality of it. In other words, how much do they care about us or how much do they really use us or do they even hear our marketing right now? He would ask those kind of questions, which I think are critical. And as I said earlier, too, feedback is the breakfast of champions. So you always want to be listening to your customers. And the great advantage that I think small companies have over large ones is they're usually more front and center with their customers and their clients. In other words, a small company has uh, customers coming in their door every day, but a big company like IBM, they're in a monolithic skyscraper in Manhattan and they're 3,000 miles away from their customers. So I think that daily touch point, that daily interaction, asking those questions, what do you like about us? What, What do you wish would change? Trying to really get a sense of how you fit into their lives makes for the most authentic, effective advertising. And it's it's about listening. I always say the best marketers are the best listeners. So listen to your customers. As you said earlier, Demono, social media is a great place to listen. Because, you know, prior to social media, as you were saying, you'd have to hire a research company for tens of thousands of dollars to get that kind of feedback. And now it's free right in front of you. So listen to it. I can just put up a poll on Instagram stories and have everything you need to know. 
There's no shortage of opinions out there. And there they are. And they're there for the picking. Right. And I'm sure also there's value in sometimes if you just release a product and see how people react to it, there's learning in every launch, whether it's successful or not. Um, And that's something that as an entrepreneur, I'm also starting to embrace. Sometimes you get rejected from, (laughs) maybe you get rejected in love, you get rejected from a job, but to have a product, something you put into the world rejected, it can cause you to want to throw in the towel and walk away from it. But really it's an opportunity to iterate and to hear what your customers are saying and rejecting a, a particular offering that you've put out. I agree. And to just to add to that, social media, when we're talking about various social media channels like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, et cetera, we have another interesting opportunity these days, which was almost unaffordable back in the traditional advertising years, where you can tweak a campaign in each of those channels. In other words, to see what's working. So in other words, I mean, you have something running in Facebook and then you tweak it a bit, maybe slightly different language in Twitter, and then you you do something more visual in Instagram, you can see what's pulling the most. So, I mean, that's an amazing thing. I mean, there's a, an old story I've told on my show where somebody ran an ad for a roofing product and it was uh, repair your roof with three easy steps and got almost no response to the ad. And then they changed repair to fix, how to fix your roof in three easy steps. And they got overwhelming return because repair sounded like a task and fix sounded like a solution. So a one-word tweak changed everything. So when you think you have all these wonderful channels at your disposal, experiment. Just change everything just a little bit and see what pulls, see what gets the most response. Yeah, that is really a benefit of social media marketing. You can sort of micro-target and you can split test and really see what's working and then double down on that. This question came to us from Natasha Shepard, a small business owner in Toronto, Canada. As an entrepreneur and a small business owner, how do you get a big uh, ROI with a small marketing budget? I think first and foremost, you have to be bold. I think your marketing, when you're dealing with a small budget, you have to be bold. And uh, I'm a big believer in that. I don't mean to be sophomoric or to be tasteless, but I mean to be courageous with your work and bold with the ideas because I think you know, being bold, being humorous, being dramatic makes up for a a small budget. The riskiest thing you can do is to be safe with your marketing because then you become invisible and then you get no return on your investment. So I always say, does the idea make your hands sweat a little bit before you release it? When you look at that idea and go, boy, that's a big idea. And if your hands start to sweat a little bit, that's probably the right choice. Because if it's easy to approve and easy to do and just, you know, it takes a half hour to come up with an idea and send it out into the social media world, it probably isn't worth the paper it was written on or or the screen it was typed on because it was too easy. Oh, wow. So I say be bold. I love that. I love this conversation with you, Terry. Before we go, we like to ask all of our guests about their favorite tips or tools. Do you have a tip or a tool to share with us today? One guiding philosophy that I always try and and remind myself of and stick to is that there's always a solution to be had. In other words, even when you seem to be staring at an insurmountable problem, 
or uh, a marketing issue or you are suddenly losing customers or whatever the, the predicament is, there is always a brilliant solution to be had if you're willing to roll up your sleeves and really dig into it. And I mean, my show is full of those stories where a small company is facing a disaster or a big company suddenly has a PR meltdown. And But there are companies that are smart and they think about it and they're thoughtful and they're willing to be bold and uh, they're willing to really, you know, burn the midnight oil and they'll come up with a brilliant solution. And I always, whenever I'm sitting here, you know, in my office and I'm thinking, oh, you know, this is a really difficult thing we're trying to crack here. I always calm down, take a deep breath and go, there's a great solution hiding here somewhere. I just have to find it. So that's the thing that I really cling to. And that that was from my mentor way, way back again to uh, his name was Trevor Goodgall, and he was a big believer in that. And he instilled that in me, that there's always a great solution to be had. Like Terry said, there's always a solution to be had. Now is the time to be bold, to innovate. And we will find brilliant solutions to the challenges we are facing together. Keep in mind these other great tips that Terry offered. Remember the potato chip? Sometimes it's better to dominate in just one market instead of spreading your marketing efforts thin. Survey your customers and don't be scared of the outcome. All information about your market is good information. Learn from Steve Jobs. Dedicate weekly time to your marketing. Study what big brands are doing in your category, but remember that differentiating yourself is the key to success. And of course, learn from business history as it can inform your business future. No wonder Terry's podcast, Under the Influence, was named one of Apple Podcasts' best listens of 2019. Give it a listen, and while you're at it, pick up his book, This I Know. And look out for a new podcast from his team called We Regret to Inform You, which tells fascinating stories of successful people who triumphed over debilitating career rejection and the insights those rejections provide. I can't believe it, but this is the final episode of I Make a Living Season 2. I have so loved sharing every discussion with you, and I hope you have too. I have learned so much from every interview, but most importantly, I've been inspired by the determination and creativity of the entrepreneurs I've spoken with, and the tenacity and ambition of those of you who have attended our I Make a Living live events and listened to this podcast. We will be back in August for season three with a series of episodes highlighting how entrepreneurs are innovating and rebuilding from this pandemic and how we are anticipating the challenges that still lie ahead. Is there a topic that we didn't cover on this season that you'd like for us to cover in season three? We want to hear your suggestions. Leave us a review and let us know what you want to learn when we return. In the meantime, don't forget to join our Facebook community page at facebook.com slash groups slash I make a living or search the hashtag I make a living on Facebook to find us. There will continually be new content and ways for us to connect on that community page. This podcast was brought to you by FreshBooks, the number one cloud accounting solution for small business owners and their teams. If you want to spend less time on accounting so you can spend more time on marketing, you should see how we can help you at freshbooks.com slash I-M-A-L. And we have an exclusive offer just for our podcast listeners. That's freshbooks.com slash I-M-A-L, short for I Make a Living. Our audio engineer and composer is James Morris. 
Producing and directing comes from Paco Arismendi, and I'm your host and producer, Demona Hoffman. Let's connect. I'm on all the socials at Demona Hoffman or at DemonaHoffman.com. And remember to be unique because it's your business. See you next season. 